Hi, I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange. This is Conversations with Kelly, where I take a deep dive with an expert on a topic I'm particularly interested in. My guest today is Mark Campanale, the founder of Carbon Tracker. Carbon Tracker has been around for a decade, but came to my attention this summer when the investing implications of the rise of renewable energy were starting to become more clear. You have giants like Exxon, for instance, abandoning their most heavily emitting future projects. You have the huge success of Tesla suddenly making people grapple with the implications of a future electric vehicle fleet and legacy automakers scrambling to catch up. Mark has been way ahead of these developments, and I'm eager to probe the investment implications for the next decade, especially with oil prices currently at their highest level since 2014. So with all of that, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kellen. Very happy to be joining you today. My previous guest was Toby Rice. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's the CEO of EQT. They're the biggest U.S. natural gas producer. Mm, gosh, now I don't know him personally, but wow, you've got some great people in your program. Well, and we've been talking a lot about energy, and I've kind of heard both sides of the coin. I've heard from natural gas producers and utility executives, and you know, now I'd like to talk with you a little bit about kind of where you see the sector headed, because actually people in the traditional oil and gas space are pretty excited right now. They're pretty bullish. I mean, look at the prices, right? Um, but their stock prices are languishing. So when oil was up here at, back in 2014, you know, stock prices were 25 to 50% above where they are now. Fundamentally, why do you think that is? Yeah, let's unpack this a little bit. So clearly we're going through a a supply crunch. There's post-COVID recovery. Oil prices are at a high. Um, what kind of investors are coming in is what I, I want to know. Have you got the long-term pension funds, the one investing for 20, 30 years, coming back into the market? Or are they investors more driven by short-term opportunities? So more hedge funds and more speculative opportunistic funds. Because what's clear uh, from the investors we talk to at Carbon Tracker is that um, many of them are signing net zero investor commitments where they pledge to their clients and to their staff that they will be reducing their emissions, aligning their portfolios with the Paris climate goals. And that means getting out of fossil fuels. And then the second thing that they recognize as part of this decarbonization program is that we're in the middle of a clean energy revolution. It's not gone unnoticed that electric vehicle sales are just accelerating ahead um, and that these new technologies are now getting cheaper and better and more efficient and more reliable. Um, and the fossil fuel incumbents are facing a very strong headwind of, of technology, which is which is will beat them out on price and beat them out on reliability. Now the pension funds are looking at this going, well, do we want to be in uh, canals when the world is moving to railroads? Or do we want to be in railroads when people are moving to cars? And do we want to be um, on, in you know, companies like Blockbuster with the, the video stores when the world is moving to Netflix? Exactly the same point of view is being adopted by pension funds today when it looks at, at, at things like natural gas, coal, and oil. They're seeing these as sunset industries, not as sunrise industries, and they're making these portfolio switches. And it's a long-term trend, and it's getting stronger and more determined uh, each year that goes by, and particularly as the climate science becomes uh, ever more dramatic and ever more uh, scientifically proven. So all of that said, 
Tesla is the only renewable stock that seems to be doing well. Um, unless we sort of now say, well, Ford and GM have done much better, you know, up 60% or whatever over the past year because they finally made this pivot and are really embracing EVs. But a lot of the solar stocks have been horrible. I mean, you know the stats, like half of the solar yeah. companies ever invented have gone bankrupt, right? The, yeah, the no, I mean, companies. look at, you know, just, just stand back for a minute and let's look at these business models. If you can find oil at $10 a barrel, break even and sell it at $80 a barrel, you're clearly going to be making a lot of cash and paying out to your shareholders. And that is a, a venture-driven speculative type opportunity. Now let's let's look at renewables. It's getting cheaper. The, the margins on making solar are very thin. Uh, can you make money from building the wind turbines? Is it a technology play actually making these things? And the answer to that is no. It's a bit different to deploying the technology, I think, with, with a Tesla. But when it comes to an energy, what you're really looking at, these renewable energy companies are more like utilities where they've got a long-term power purchase agreements going out 15, 20 years typically on a set price with a, just a gentle rise for inflation. And uh, you're buying a long-term cash flow. Now, that's not the same as, as a more venture type uh, company. So when you look at the shareholders, you've got two different types of shareholders. For the utilities, you've got long-term yield-seeking income investors and pension funds, which is what's happening now. And the more speculative venture com companies with a lot of volatility, that's the story in oil and gas the last three, five, seven years, a lot of volatility in prices. It was only a year and a half ago that we had negative prices in oil and gas, and look at it now. Um, and that is not something that steadies you go uh, pension funds are interested in. So you're seeing a split. Um, the longer term pension funds that want yield are going for the renewables, thinking, thinking of this as listed infrastructure, whereas those sticking with oil and gas are looking at this as short term uh, cash opportunity from dramatic swings in commodity prices. Very, very different beasts. So before I move off of this point, what would be the biggest companies that come to mind as sort of utility-like renewable investments? Because I have to imagine at this point, most of them are still maybe UK, European-based, maybe a couple in the US come to mind, but there don't seem to be a lot of obvious candidates right now. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, Tesla was a small company just a few years ago, look at it now. And, uh, you know, there was one of the Californian companies that is the US's leading renewable energy player whose market cap exceeded Exxon's just last year, as you may, you may recall. In Europe, of course, we've got companies like uh, Orsted. But, but if you think about uh, infrastructure, a lot of this is not on market. It's private equity. It's private assets. Um, and so when you look at the deals done by pension funds, a lot of it is in infrastructure. And so, people, of course, there are listed plays that you can find, but a lot of this is, is our private, privately held companies in held by pension funds who are typically allocating a few billion to, to renewables. I mean, BlackRock as a fund manager uh, has a vast renewable energy infrastructure team measured in the tens of billions of dollars and growing. Um, and they're doing that because their clients are looking for those types of investments. So you're not going to find it as much in the public markets. But... Um, there is a specialist fund manager that we know, and I better say how I know them, because one of my directors uh, is an employee called Impax, I-M-P-A-X, Asset Management. They've gone from a few billion uh, under management a few years ago to 
to some $40 billion of funds under management. They're specialist environmental markets fund manager, um, their infrastructure fund manager, and to go from a few billion to $40 billion in just a matter of single digit years, just years just goes to show how much capital is moving into the space. And of course, you've got lots of other fund managers that are internationally well known, like Generation um, Investment Management, and there are plenty others in that space. I mentioned BlackRock, and of course, you know, got large institutions moving into it. So what you want to look at is this shift and look at where the capital is going, because that's, tell that's telling you really what the energy and transport systems are going to be looking like in five, 10 years time. Yeah, fair enough. And as you're describing all this, it makes me think maybe we're just a little early for, you know, I mean, look how long it took oil and gas to give us the giants that it has. The industry has been around for over 100 years. Um, and the company that you mentioned earlier is Nextera, which is now... Yeah, $160 billion market cap company, which has been, you know, just kind of moving ever higher over the past several years. Yeah, I think that's it. We're going to see more of these companies. And in, I mean, if you look at the allocations to ESG strategies more broadly uh, in public equities, but also in debt, as well as infrastructure, it's just growing and growing and growing. And, and that's really where the capital is going to come from to fund this clean energy revolution and i was at the launch at the cop you know the, the 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 climate agreement in glasgow last year to see governor mark carney and mayor bloomberg launch gfas the glasgow finance alliance for net zero um their membership has reached 130 trillion dollars and they gather that membership pretty much within a year so that goes i mean 130 trillion dollars i guess that's a pretty big amount of money committed to sustainability and to dealing with climate change wow so one of the sort of early points that you made that really put you guys on the map was really your ability to forecast what could happen with the reserves of existing oil and gas companies if even at the margin renewables are successful. And I'd love to spend a little time talking about that now because as we enter 2022, that world seems to be coming a little bit more into focus. Um, stranded assets, how big of, a, of an issue do you think that could be for major oil and gas producers? Well, yeah, and that's a good point. So what you've got is you've got, if you look at the core assumptions by the oil and gas majors, they're assuming that oil prices will stay at around $70, $80 a barrel. They've got, they're using scenarios that oil demand will go up. Um, and if that goes up, that clearly will clash with the international climate agreements that most of the world's uh, governments have signed. Um, and now the oil companies and the coal companies will be building out uh, fossil-based infrastructure and developing reserves that we don't believe the world will need. And some commentators like Reistad and others have said, look, to get to one and a half degrees, which is where the Paris Climate Agreement once tells us we want to be, then um, oil prices would drop to around $18 a barrel. To, to close down supply that keeps us within this one and a half degrees threshold. Now, I, I reckon um, we should see the oil companies use 30 to $40 a barrel as a stress test to see whether they should be developing their reserves. And of course they're not. And as a consequence, you're seeing projects sanctioned, which we think the world will not need um, as we achieve and get towards these climate goals and because of the clean technology revolution. And so companies, are deploying capital that we think uh, would be better returned to shareholders or allocated elsewhere, perhaps into renewable energy plays. Um, and then the strand of assets, you've got 
you know, you'll have oil rigs and you'll, you'll have um, pipelines constructed with the assumption that they will have a 30 or 40 year life when we think that actually they'll only have an economic return for maybe another decade or so. And, and that's just a misuse of capital. And you can, you can estimate the extent of it. We think there's around $20 trillion of fixed assets of the fossil fuel system, these pipelines and rigs and coal-fired power stations that will have to be dismantled over the next decade to have any chance of us achieving the 50% reduction in emissions that people like Biden and, and uh, all the major world governments have signed up to. It's a big shift in a very short order of time. Well, and this, I think, is where the whole issue really comes to a head because you have the you know, I, I'm seeing the research that, you know, Wall Street is putting about, out about the oil price right now. And it's very bullish because they say quite simply, there's too much demand relative to supply and this situation could sustain for at least this year, maybe into next year, who knows. So they're talking about $80 a barrel oil and you're talking about $40 a barrel oil. When are, when are, when is this tug of war going to be decided? Is it 23, 24, 25, end of the decade. That's what I want to know is when does the bearishness yeah. that you see reassert itself? Yeah, I think what we're going to have to see is, is demand destruction. And the demand destruction for oil is going to come um, and for gas is going to come when um, uh, electric vehicle growth rates and sales exceed that of, of the internal combustion engine. It's really a battle over technology. It, the the uh, alternative, whether it's electric vehicle or, 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 or some other system versus the internal combustion engine, who's really going to win that battle? Um, so in Europe, we, we just four years ago, electric vehicles were around two to three percent of complete sales, total sales. Today, it's around 20 percent. Now, that's within four years. Now, when it gets to, say, 40 percent or 50 percent within a few years, that's where markets realize that um, the growth that has been forecast by many of the oil and gas companies won't come through. That's the biggest risk that they face. And of course, they say, well, you know, demand's going to come through from China or demand's going to come through from India. And India and China have both signed their own climate pledges. But, but more than that, if you take an economy like India, they're spending $60 billion a year on oil imports. It's not great for their their foreign exchange reserves. It's not great for the economy. And they, they realize that cheap renewables... Um, and powering up electric vehicles and electric motorbikes and electric, you know, three wheelers are, is, which is what the Indian economy tends to, to use. Um, you could re be removing a lot of oil demand from India and China uh, has, as we know, has been leading the charge on, a, on electrification of transport um, and the same with its, with its power system. So, so if that demand doesn't come through, then you'll see um, the, the, the plans of the, of the fossil fuel producers beginning to falter. Because there's one fundamental thing that we know is true, is that fossil fuels as an industry is inherently inflationary. To go out into the uh, Arctic, to get your tankers and your rigs up there, to get your pipelines constructed, to bring it on shore, uh, to process it, refine it, is inherently expensive. And all the cheap stuff has been found or mostly found you're left with the expensive stuff. It just gets more and more expensive to get it out the ground, to refine it and to put it into, into the end use. Whereas the opposite is true of renewables. It's available pretty much at the point of where you want to use it. It's through sunlight and wind and you're accessing it 
with technologies that are on steep learning curves. Every doubling of production, you're seeing a 20% reduction in price. And the long-term downward cost curves for renewables is just getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So you've got a clash. Fossil fuels are getting more expensive to produce. The clean alternatives is getting cheaper to produce and the consumer will make the switch. So you go down to the gas station to fill up your car and you see the prices going up and going up. Why wouldn't you plug in at home with a cheap energy source, maybe you've got a solar on your on your roof. Maybe your village or your town has got a, a wind farm that you can access to. And uh, there were some statistics that came out from a, an electricity company just this week in the United Kingdom that reckons just 10 million cars with electric batteries would store enough electricity in the car batteries to run the to run the grid for a day. Um, uh, with, to meet all of our energy needs. So, you know, you use your car for about an hour a day, you leave it on your outside, your drive and your, your house, you get your electricity at, at night, very, very cheaply, you store it in your car battery. And when you're not using your car, the energy uh, system or the grid draws on your electricity and your battery, and you're selling it at peak prices. And, and the same energy company was at Ovo actually reckon, the, if you're spending £1,500 a year on, 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 on energy, you'll make about £450 a year selling electricity back into the grid. So what you're seeing is a revolution in the way we think about transport, energy storage, energy generation and distribution. And it's all driven by technology and, and, and cleaner technologies getting cheaper. You know, in the world that you described it, like you said, it's not pie in the sky. I mean, this stuff is starting to happen. The vehicle to grid thing might be a few more years off, especially in the US, but the EV sales numbers are up. You know, we see where this is going. One question, which I, I want to gauge your frustration level, because yeah. what you're describing sounds utopian in some ways. And yet what's happening in the UK right now? We have all of these power providers going bankrupt, shutting down leaving customers in the lurch, they're getting, you know, emails saying, you know, oh, drink a cup of tea to stay warm because, you know, there is a, an energy crisis that many say it, the renewable industry is to quote unquote blame, but why is there a lack of clean firm power? Does more need well, to be done to get, you know, some LNG supplies or something to that extent? Let, let's and, clear this, let's clear this one up. Um, yeah. Where you've got a few monopoly suppliers, Russia, Algeria, Kazakhstan, Norway, who control the supply of gas, where, and where you've got thousands of buyers, then you create a, a situation where, the, where the, the limited sellers can dictate prices, which is what's been happening now. And I don't know how familiar you are with how European energy systems have worked, but 10 years ago, you had these long-term supply agreements between Russia, Norway, and the other big gas suppliers with Europe. And um, the European Commission and policymakers thought very cleverly they would move to what are called spot prices, market prices. So you have to pay whatever is in the, the market price today. Um, now, what's happened is that the people selling into the spot market are now dictating the prices and people have now gone back and said, actually, why can't we have a 10 year long term supply agreement? You know, and so uh, unfortunately, uh, the energy system driven by fossil fuels has created the problem. Now, if you look at renewables, now for where do we need the gas? You need it for cooking. Uh, induction technologies are, are better than for, for cooking than, than gas or natural gas. Um, and for heating, 
we have uh, the opportunity in, in many parts of the country for ground source heat pumps, another form of technology. And similarly to how um, solar and wind got cheaper and cheaper, we're seeing huge cost reductions in, in ground source heat pumps. The challenge now is can we deploy these cheaper technologies fast enough to meet our climate goals and to push out gas demand from the system? I think we can. Unfortunately, we can't do it in single digit years. We're going to have to do this in over a decade or more. Exactly. But, um, it will compete our, it will keep out, compete our gas. Uh, so um, I think, you know, technologies like ground source heat pumps, and it's not the only technology will win, um, but it's just a matter of time. And, and we have to look at governments. Governments create the policy environments for technologies to thrive. And we've had incentives to get renewables going, that's true, but now renewables are cheaper in most, if not all parts of the world without subsidy. And we need the same kickstart support to, to, to build out um, uh, these new technologies like ground, seas, ground source heat pumps, yeah. uh, but it's yet to arrive at the scale that we need. You know, it, there's a Goldman analyst who calls this the revenge of the old economy, meaning, you know, the price spikes we've seen in oil and some of these commodities. But I wonder if this is also, in some ways, the last sort of battle of the old economy, right? I mean, this yeah. decade feels like it is going to be one in which we might have uh, big price spikes and even good returns for oil and gas companies in the near term as a consequence of this ultimate transition away from them entirely. So it feels like both sides are going to be right for possibly five to 10 years. Yes, Old prices it's, will it's be an high, time. new technologies a, are coming. And then I just wonder, is the consumer sort of squeezed in the middle because if they can't afford the new technologies and they're paying the old prices, they're just going, what am, what am I supposed to do here? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a very interesting point you make and, and the consumer regrettably is being squeezed. Policymakers didn't move fast enough. Uh, the deployment of the new technologies hasn't been fast enough, but the technologies are there. It's not like we need new technology. It's there, it's just a matter of how we scale it. I think the challenge that the people selling fossil fuels have got to face is that as prices go up to generate these super returns, governments are stepping in, like you, we're hearing about now in the United Kingdom, uh, imposing what they call a windfall tax on oil and gas to, 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 to tax away those super profits. And as you've got higher prices of the pump, all it's doing is forcing the consumer to, to make the switch to electric vehicles. And as electric vehicles are getting cheaper as they are, as soon as they've reached price parity, they, they have in many in many places for, 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 uh, for family models, people will go, well, let me just get rid of my internal combustion engine. It's costing me a couple of hundred dollars a week to run my car. If I switch to electric, it's gonna be you know, $10, $20 a week. Why don't I make that shift? And if the price of the car is the same, and you know you can lease these vehicles, um, why don't you just switch to leasing electric vehicle and, and seeing the running costs just drop dramatically, not just the running costs, but the maintenance costs. Um, uh, dropping dramatically as well. So, you know, putting aside the benefits of selling the electricity back into the grid. So I think this battle is going to be won by the clean technologies. I think that's clear. And investors, the people we care about, are, are believing that too. But you're right, we are seeing one last hurrah of the fossil fuel incumbents um, as, as the switch, as this sort of switch happens. I mean, I, I would love to have seen what... Um, the board of Blockbuster said um, 
uh, when Netflix arrived, were they going to compete with them? Were they going to buy them? Or were they going to double down producing videos? And the same kind of question is happening in people running oil and gas companies. And shareholders are testing boards. You know, you saw the removal of three or four directors by Engine One from Exxon uh, mm -hmm. last year because the shareholders didn't believe in the strategy of Exxon any longer. And the same kind of question is being posed by the activist shareholders trying to split up Shell, you know, the oil and gas company. Yeah. And that's going to be rolling out across the board, not just for oil and gas, but for coal-fired power and utilities as well. And initiatives at Carbon Tracker, you know, my nonprofit support, the main one is Climate Action 100, which is this $40, 50 $50 trillion coalition of shareholders going after the world's top 200 polluters, trying to get them to present their transition plans to get out of um, dirty fossil fuels and high carbon emissions. And, and this pressure is only going one way. We haven't got a $50, $50 trillion coalition saying, don't do that. You know, you've got the investors shouting louder and louder and louder to make this um, transition go faster. Yeah. And on that note, and there's, you have to come back, Mark, if you, if you would be so kind, we have two or three different podcasts we have to do. Very Let happy just... to talk again, Kelly. I tweet this at Campanale Mark or at Carbon Bubble. I'm okay, very terrific. happy to, very happy to respond to tweets or talk further, Kelly. It's been, so been a delight my, to share some of my views. Here's my closing question, which like I said, could be a podcast in and of itself. If I'm correct, you were involved in basically an early version of ESG investing like 30 years ago. Now that was, this movement yeah. has gone completely mainstream, what would your advice be to investors who are, oh. I mean, because there's so many, you know what I'm saying, there's so many bad sort of just shadow tracking kinds of funds out there. Any parting yeah. words as sort of an expert on this topic? The first, first is an observation. The only thing worse than being too late to a market is being too early. <laughs> And, and then the second is, is buy the trend. So look at the long-term trend and find a, a specialist fund manager that invests in, in stocks, could be public markets, could be private markets, could be debt, that is providing capital to the solutions providers, the people with the ideas and the innovation and the insights. And there's plenty of managers out there. Passive, big index funds that, that just invest in the fangs, that's not going to get you to where you want to be. So it's a to get yourself a good investment advisor and double down on the research, look around the web and, and, and play and try some ideas. All right, terrific. I, re I really appreciate this again, Mark. Thank you for your time. Lovely being with you, Kelly. And thanks everybody for listening. Be sure to follow the Exchange Podcast for more discussions like this and catch our show live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then.